This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Replicate Ministries with Robbie Gallaty and his team. Here's audio content from Replicate and their track called A Pathway for Making Disciples. Amen. All right. Uh, I am Chris Swain. I'm the executive director of Replicate uh, Ministries. We exist to equip the local church to make disciples who make disciple makers. Uh, very specific mission there. We're going to break that down for you in a little bit. But thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've got some great stuff to discuss. We're going to jump right into it because we do have so much. Uh, first, I want each person to just kind of introduce yourself and uh, explain maybe uh, just a little bit about who you are, if you don't mind. Start with Candy. Yes. Okay. Okay, I'm Candy, uh, married to Robbie. Um, we've been married for almost 12 years now. We have two little boys. Um, we're both passionate about disciple making, have been um, investing in the lives of me, women, him, men, um, for 13, 14 years now. And so that's obviously evolved, and that process has um, been tweaked as we just pray through every single year, each group, what's, what we find is the most effective um, way. And so that's me. Amen. Candy, I'm not just saying this, my wife is one of the premier, if not the premier, disciple-making women in our country. And I know there's not a lot of them. Um, I wish there were more of them, and prayerfully some are in this room. But she's not only thoughtful, she is practical, and she is discipling our kids, too. Which is, uh, you know, it's, it's easy for us as parents to neglect our children by walking across the church building on Wednesday night to disciple men while we walk past the nursery. So... Uh, Candy and I both know the first church for our home is the chief disciple-making ministry. So uh, I'm Robbie Gallaty. I'm the pastor here at Long Hollow. We've been here for about a year, uh, so welcome to our church. Uh, those who are here for the first time, uh, we're enjoying uh, the ministry here. Long Hollow, just the history of our church, God, by God's grace, the church just expositionally grew over the past 18 years in the middle of a farmland. As you're driving here, you're like, where is this place? And then, you know, you come and... Kind of the same thing we thought when we came. Uh, the church was highly engaged in evangelism. 2014, when I was going through the interview process, they said we baptized over a thousand people in 2014. They said in 2013, we almost baptized a thousand people. They said, Pastor, what do you think about coming into that kind of church environment? I said, Wow, that's amazing. <clears throat> what did you do with the people? And they said, That's why we're talking to you. Uh, so they knew, not that we had all the answers, but they knew that they needed to do something. And I think in a lot of churches, as you would agree, most churches view baptism as the finish line. And as we know, it's the starting line, right? It's a big difference. And so I've been here for a year. Uh, ministry's very uh, it, it's challenging at times, but amazing. Got a great staff. These guys will tell you who are on staff with us. Uh, and I'll share my testimony later, but um, yeah. Replicate started 2008 um, to equip the local church. We wanted to be a ministry led by pastors for leaders in the church, or by leaders in the church for leaders in the church. Uh, a lot of a lot of ministries outside the church were trying to figure out how to do it in the church. We felt like the Lord had given us uh, an opportunity to steward that well, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach people how to have a reproducible ministry in the local church 
which is plan A, uh, as you know. Man, my name is Gus Hernandez, and as Pastor mentioned, I'm from Miami, Florida. Uh, born and raised there. Uh, came to Tennessee to go to school, and that's where you know God really gripped my heart. I was discipled while I was in college. And after seminary, I was hired at Brainerd Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Served there for about six and a half years. Then went back to Miami, served there for about three years. And then just recently here, uh, this last December, uh, the Lord uh, brought me back to Tennessee to serve on staff with Pastor Robbie as the spiritual formation pastor here at Long Hollow. So I oversee everything uh, from our life groups ministry, our men's, women's ministries, our college ministry, and then also our D groups, our discipleship groups. My name is Tim LaFleur, and I'm the campus development pastor here at Long Hollow. I was with Pastor Robbie for several years at um, Brainerd Baptist, and uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today uh, started many years ago, but they were really uh, cultivated at Brainerd, and uh, it's my joy to be here on staff and to invest in men, and uh, especially discipling and equipping our campus pastors to uh, do the work here at Long Hollow. All right, so replicate. Uh, I want to ask the question, why replicate? What is replicate? And I think that question kind of forms out of the genesis of where your passion for disciple-making uh, rose up. So that's really part of your testimony. Um, so why don't you share that with us and then kind of get us to the point of, of replicate the ministry. Yeah, so I was actually raised Roman Catholic, uh, very religious growing up, uh, South Louisiana, half Italian. Went to church on Sunday. If we missed Sunday, went to confession on Saturday. Very religious uh, family. But I didn't have a personal relationship with God. I knew who Jesus was, uh, but I didn't really know who God was uh, personally. And so got a scholarship to play basketball at a Southern Baptist college as a Roman Catholic. You can imagine what that was like as the target of every evangelism class on campus. Uh, I heard the gospel, rejected it uh, until seven years later uh, when I truly came to the Lord. But I got out of college uh, in 98 uh, through a series of events of bouncing and bartending and MMA fighting. Uh, I was coming home from work November 20, or November uh, 22nd, 1999. An 18-wheeler came across two lanes of traffic, rear-ended my car 65 miles an hour, slammed me into the guardrail. Um, my seatbelt broke. Uh, my seatbelt lock and my, my seat broke off the hinges. I herniated two discs in my neck, two in my back. I went to the doctors. And at 22, I went home with Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And so I'm 22 years old, legitimately in pain. Uh, long story short, over the next three years, I moved to street drugs. I had $180 a day heroin and cocaine addiction. Um, times were good in the beginning as I was selling drugs. And then toward the end, the addiction outweighed the habit. And uh, just overpowered me. Eight of my friends died. Six went to prison. Two rehab treatments. Robbed my own family for $15,000. And then finally, November 12, 2002. I'm not even in a church or a revival service. I'm in my room. And I remembered seven years before what Jeremy told me in college about Christ. And uh, had a 24-hour experience with the Lord. I repented of my sins. I knew I was a sinner. I knew God was my Savior. I knew I had to, had to repent. And I uh, had a, had a Paul-like conversion, and uh, my life was radically changed. But here's the difference. I, I wandered for the next nine months. I mean, I, I was a Christian, but I wandered. Uh, didn't know how to read the Bible. Uh, didn't know how to memorize Scripture. Didn't know I should. Uh, didn't know how to pray. I mean, I knew, I knew how to pray the Our Father and the Hail Mary, but I didn't know how to pray. And uh, I'm at church one Sunday in the middle of the summer, and a girl comes up to me, and she says, You're like a, you're like a disciple. You're like a Timothy. You need a Paul. You need someone to disciple you. And I said, do people still do that? 
because I'd read it in the Bible. <clears throat> she said, uh, they do if you pray for it. And so I prayed fervently for two months. I'm at Edgewater Baptist Church, Paris Avenue, New Orleans, Louisiana. Jim Shaddix is the pastor. And one Sunday in August, a man named David Platt walks across the church and says, Robbie, God's placed you on my heart. Would you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? And uh, for the next two years, we met twice a week, David and I individually, and then in a group of about five, six, seven guys. Uh, David not only taught people, asked me, what was it like meeting with David Platt for two years? Uh, it wasn't so much what David taught me as much as what he emulated before me. And, 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 I, and I shared his similar passion to reach the unengaged, unreached peoples of the world. I shared his desire to preach God's word unapologetically, expositionally. Uh, I caught more than he taught me, if in a sense. And uh, Dave was very influential in my life. He baptized me. He stood in our wedding. Uh, he took me on my first mission trip. He encouraged me to go to seminary. I was his assistant for a season of time. And so I say all that to say that I'm the product of discipleship. And I thought that was normal, like the normal part of a Christian Christian's life. But when I became a pastor, I realized it was abnormal. Like a pastor who thinks disciple-first mindset or with a disciple-first mindset is abnormal in the ministry, as you guys are. Is that, is that the case for you? Is that kind of what you've seen in the, in the church today? That's kind of what we saw. And so in 2008, we decided to start a ministry uh, where we were going to try to equip the local church uh, to, to make disciples who make disciple-makers. Well, we do that in, in, in a few ways. So for those who are not familiar with Replicate, uh, we do that in a few ways. One is, is resources. So we try to, to, to write and create resources for the church. Growing up is one of those resources, firmly planted, bearing fruits coming out. Uh, I wrote a book called Rediscovering Discipleship, which is basically what I've learned from David. Tim was also very instrumental in my life. The summer of 2004, he took me to Gloriata, New Mexico, which I talked about earlier. Uh, and we spent a summer together like college buddies. Uh, Tim took a chance on me because back then I was a one-year-old Christian on the seminary campus, and my nickname was Ignorance on Fire. I didn't know a lot, but the little I knew I was passionate about. And uh, Tim took a chance, and Tim's been a spiritual father to me in the faith. And so we took those, those insights I've learned through the years, kind of put them in resources. In addition to resources, we do a training. Uh, we do it two to three times a year. I learned this from David. Uh, David Platt did this with uh, Brook Hills. He called it the Radical Intensive, where he brings teams in for two days, their team and the leaders, and he intensely trains them in missions. Well, we do the same thing with discipleship. We do it here at Long Hollow. Uh, we do it for two days. There's one coming up in, in, in two weeks or a few weeks. And then the final thing we do is a cohort. So we select uh, anywhere from 16 to 18 to 20 leaders in the church, pastors, leaders, who will journey with us for two years, similar to Bill Hall and his discipleship uh, Bonhoeffer project. Uh, but we, we intensely meet for two years, three times uh, over the course of two years, two times a year. And so we're trying to create a movement. I'm just trying to partner with people to create a disciple-making movement. So, you know, this conference, we're going to be talking about discipleship. Obviously, it's discipleship.org. I think a few years ago, if you were to ask me what discipleship is, I probably would have said what we study in Sunday school or a class that we go to or a process, a study of some kind. And the beauty of learning about what real discipleship is, is knowing how it impacts our lives. And so 
even at a conference like this, there's probably going to be some differing definitions of discipleship. So I want to ask Gus just to clarify, what is discipleship? And share a little bit about yourself, but also within that context of defining it. Yeah, absolutely. Many of you have probably heard the phrase, language creates culture. Another way of saying it is, you know, words create worlds by which we live in. And that's so true when it comes to disciple making. And I love that Pastor Bill Hall is here and, and he's gone on the record to say, you know, the gospel you preach determines the disciple that you'll make. So when we were trying to figure this out at Brainerd Baptist, when we were trying to put together Replicate Ministries, we just got together and said, okay, let's define discipleship for our people so that way we're on the same playing field. We want to make sure we're defining the terms. We have the same goal. We have the same mindset. We're trying to achieve the same thing. And so for us, here's our definition. We're not saying it's the only definition. We would never think that. There are a lot of great ministries here that have defined discipleship well, and it's biblical. But for our people, this helped us kind of put some words there to create the framework by which we wanted to create healthy discipleship groups. And for us, disciple-making is intentionally equipping believers with the Word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. And for us, we realize that evangelism should always produce discipleship. You know, they're not pitted against each other, two sides of the same coin. So for us, if we're intentionally entering into someone's life, it's because we want to get to the stage where we help them know who Jesus is and get them to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. And so at the moment that they follow Christ, it is our responsibility now to equip them with the Word of God so they know how to obey God. And so it's very much the importance is obedience. And so we want to equip believers with the Word of God, you know, through accountable relationships. And for us, instead of doing a one-on-one model, which isn't bad, we've chosen to do a, a discipleship group model. Uh, we, we think that discipleship in groups of three to five is, is optimal. It's, it's good. It helps with multiplication. It helps with accountability and reproducibility. And Pastor does a great job explaining some of the reasons for why we choose a discipleship group model of three to five people, gender-specific, men discipling men, women discipling women, uh, over a one-on-one strategy um, at our church. But that's kind of how we define discipleship, and then we put um, some systems in place to kind of help us with consistency. That's good, and you'll be leading that session right after this on the DNA, what that looks like, elaborating on that. Um, So, Pastor, why hasn't discipleship been happening? If we know, you know, we kind of define it, we kind of understand what it is. Like I said before, uh, recent times, I don't think this this effort, this focus on discipleship has been happening to the extent that it is now. And so, you know, we've seen uh, evangelistic practices kind of be lifted high for a long time. Historically, we've seen that recently. But why do you think discipleship has not been at the forefront of, of most churches, I would, I would dare say, uh, most churches uh, these days? Yeah, and so as Gus, I appreciate Gus saying what he said. I mean, you have ten ministries here. We're all passionate about disciple making, although we do it a little differently. And uh, I think this is a historic event. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, when when else are you gathered around like-minded individuals like this? Yeah, praise the Lord. We we're around like-minded individuals, and I really believe I'll say this on the front end, and I'll say this tomorrow. I believe a return to biblical discipleship will enact the reformation of the 21st century. I really believe that with all of my heart. Here's why. Because we're empowering men and women with any race, any color, any background, any socioeconomic class to be empowered with the Spirit of God, wielding the Word of God to do the work of God. Okay, think about that. Just like the Reformation. That's what made the Reformation the Reformation, is that the priest of the believer is that anybody, any background, any race, any color, any creed, uh, any econ- economic status could take the Word of God and read it for themselves. 
And so we, at the same, at the same level, I think, can do that. So to answer your question, I think the reason we haven't made disciples through the year, uh, or through the through the years, is a couple reasons. One of which is uh, we we don't know how. And so, sadly, uh, or, or or the reality is, many people in this room, I would suggest, probably half of you, roughly half of you, would say. I've never had the privilege of somebody intentionally. Now, a lot of pastors in a broad way would invest in people. You're learning through the preaching of the word. You're learning through Sunday school, some of those ways. But many of you would say, most of you say, I haven't had the privilege of someone intentionally. Well, I can't say that. That's probably not the case here. You probably wouldn't even be here if that was it. But in normal scenario, in your churches, most people would say, I never had anybody investing in me. And so you and I both know it's hard to take someone on a journey you've never been on. Right? It's not impossible. It's just hard. And so they don't understand the same, or they, they don't share the same passion you and I share for discipleship because they've never been there. Now, that doesn't preclude people from making disciples. It just makes, her, makes it harder. And let me just say this. No model is perfect in making disciples. Some are useful. Uh, what we're going to share with you now is what we believe is a useful model. It has worked in multiple church contexts for all of us. It's worked in different church sizes. It's worked in different church dynamics. And the reason it works, I think, is because it's biblical. Uh, it's something Jesus came up with. And remember, none of us have a monopoly on making disciples, right? I mean, that was Jesus' deal. So uh, i I just tell you quickly how we came up with this, and I want Tim to speak as well, and, and Kenny can speak. Uh, I did a cursory study of the New Testament a few years ago, and I found that Jesus ministered in five distinct groups. Okay, five distinct groups, and you can write them down if you, uh, and, and you know them if I say them. The first one is the crowd. Jesus would speak to the crowd. But as you study the New Testament, you realize that Jesus rarely spent a lot of time with the crowd, right? I mean, j- just, just share back with me. What are some of the experiences that come to mind? What do you think? Sermon on the Mount would be one. Feeding the 5,000, and what's the other one? Feeding the 4,000. I mean, but think about it. You'd be hard-pressed to find encounters with Jesus outside of that where he's speaking to a large crowd. So I realize that's not where he spent most of his time. Outside of the crowd, he ministered to what I call the congregation uh, or the corporate gathering, either one. The congregation would be the committed believers, the 120 or the 70 or the 72. These would be people who are following Jesus, who are more committed than casually people who are on the peripheral. But these would be committed believers. But even those, the 70, he didn't meet with until about six months before the end of his ministry, officially, when he called those and sent them out, Luke 10. Jesus spent, you ready for this, nine-tenths, according to Eugene Peterson, nine-tenths of his time with 12 men. Now think about that. Ninety percent of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, Jesus spends 90% of his time with 12 men. And out of those 12, three. So the 12 I call the community group. He hand-selected those guys. And out of the 12, he calls three. Do you know who they are? Peter, James, and John, right? And those three are privy to five encounters with Jesus that the rest of the men weren't, okay? I was speaking at a conference last week, and uh, the, the, the conference panel discussion went something like this. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Robbie, you're way too intentional about making disciples. We kind of let it happen uh, by chance. We kind of let it happen organically in our church. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. I told him, I said, you know, it's interesting. Because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was never happenstance with his discipleship ministry. In fact, he was so intentional 
that he prays an entire night before he even chooses the 12 who will follow him. Jesus was highly intentional about investing in guys. And then the final group is the, is the close relationship. So we have the community, the three is the core, sorry, community, core, three, and then the close relationship. So here's what we did at Long Hollow. We did this at Brainerd. We did this in the past. We took three of those groups, actually four of those groups, and we came up with what we call the discipleship pathway. And I want to give it to you. Here it is. Why a pathway? We believe people in our churches, well-meaning Christians, wouldn't you agree, want to grow closer to Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Most, most if not all, born-again believers want a closer walk with Jesus. They want an intimate relationship with Jesus. Here's the problem. They don't know where to begin. And here's the thing you got to remember. When people don't know what to do, they don't do anything at all. And a lot of our people in our churches suffer from either ignorance of what to do or analysis paralysis. Whereby you have so many options on your church calendar for them to participate in, they don't even know where to start, right? Come Wednesday night this, and Thursday night supper, and pack a pew Friday, and bring a friend Wednesday, and Sunday night dinner on the ground. And all those things are great. And, and, and uh, the weekday VBS, and Wednesday night uh, GAs, and, R, and all those things are good. But they don't know where to plug in. So here's what we did. We reduced the Christian life to four steps. Here, here are they. And you'll notice, when you go to the bathroom, uh, you'll see them. Uh, what you're seeing on uh, around the church is our mission statement, which is basically the the why. We do what we do. The pathway is how we do what we do. So the mission statement is no God, find community, make disciples, change the world. Here's how we do it. Four ways. We move people from the we move people first of all into the large gathering on Sunday. So there is great benefit, as you know, the preaching of the word of God into the hearts of people. Gathering with the saints, singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs together. There's great benefit of that. Do not neglect the gathering of yourself, Hebrews. We move them from the crowd to what we call the life group time. You can call it anything you want. Sunday school, small group, on campus, off campus, connect groups, you name it. It's just all different ways to say basically what you want to do. And here's what we're doing there. And Gus is the man you want to hear on this, and he'll talk about this some next. Uh, basically what we're talking about there is this is life on life living where you're facilitating a group. You're not lecture student. They don't need another sermon by a different preacher on another topic. I don't have time to talk about that. Maybe we do, but maybe, but, but maybe not. But they need to apply what they already heard. So we do sermon-based groups, so we apply what we already heard. We reiterate, not introduce new information. So we reiterate what we heard. And then out of that, we birth our D groups, which are three to five. Um, I've got eight reasons why, if, if you have a choice, you don't. we don't start with one-on-one. We always do three to five, but we're not against one-on-one. I was discipled by David for a season one-on-one. But we do one-on-one always out of the group, never in place of the group. It's a big difference. Um, but the fishing ponds for the D group are the life groups, right? And then once you're in the life group, the, the, the expectation is, whether it's a women's group or a men's group, the expectation is you're going to reproduce the group. Remember, here's what we always say here. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. Remember that. The gospel came to you because we're sending someone else. So everybody in here is either fumbling the handoff or running with passion. And then out of that, the outflow of that is you're going to change the world because you're going to serve in the church, you're going to serve overseas, you're going to serve in your community. So that's in a just in a nutshell. Tim is a, is, is, is a master of some of this, particularly uh, the discipleship part of it. Uh, Tim's also going to talk about um, 
the worship gathering, some membership matter stuff. Uh, what, what is your session? What, what are you going to hone My in on? My session's on the gospel uh, centered relationships. Yeah. Tim, Tim also is going to talk about these divine appointments, how to turn a conversation into a gospel conversation, which leads to a discipling encounter, which is, which is a great gift he's done. Uh, so, anyway. A lot yeah, of times that's kind of the pathway. We come to this uh, type of conference. Obviously, it's the first discipleship.org, but we come to a conference like this and we hear and we get motivated and it's it's great, but we don't know what to do with what we hear. So, hopefully, what we can press into, uh, and we've got some of that here already, but I want us to make sure we're able to take this and apply it and use it. And hopefully, you see that with Replicate, it's very practical. Um, looking at getting the church involved holistically in the discipleship process. Uh, it does, you know, Pastor just touched on. Uh, the pathway. But Tim, I want you to kind of elaborate on that and also share a little bit just about how you, uh, your story in the midst of that discipleship, uh, I know Pastor mentioned it already a little bit too. Yes, I've had the privilege of um, being in ministry since about 75, I think it was, part-time doing student ministry. Uh, went to seminary in the early 80s, uh, began full-time work while I was in seminary. So I've been in ministry for many years and, and one of the things that uh, is consistent with my time. I was in my first uh, discipleship relationship when I was a brand new believer, lost Catholic kid, uh, far from God. Um, I went to a camp to meet the girls. A friend of mine who was lost didn't want to be the only partner in crime, so we went to this Christian camp, and he said, there's some good-looking girls there. I said, I'm in. So we went to camp to meet the girls. I met the Lord, and I've never been the same. When I came back, I was like Robbie. I was ignorance on fire. But a godly life group teacher, a godly Sunday school teacher, invested his life in me. I actually lived with the man for several months because my parents put me out of the house because we were raised Catholic, and that was a no-no to convert and start going to a Baptist church. So that's what happened. I came back one time from work, and my suitcase was on the porch um, so I went to live with this guy and he modeled life on life what it really meant to follow Jesus I learned how to pray because he prayed I learned how to give because he gave I learned how to share my faith because he did and he just impacted and this guy was a rice farmer Okay, he wasn't uh, seminary trained he was just a regular guy who loved the Lord and loved me, evidently, because he really uh, is in my life even to this day. Conrad Bieber is his name. In fact, one of the guys on our staff is his cousin, and it's crazy the way that works. So I've been making disciples for years, but, but there's been, it seems, I know in the churches that I've related to through the years, a disconnect between disciple-making and the local church. I believe the three agents of discipleship are the local church, the Holy Spirit, and the disciple-maker. So those are the three agents, and each one plays a a major part in these discipling relationships. And and here's the deal. Uh, At least in the churches that we know and that we're acquainted with, more and more there seems to be this disconnect between disciple-making and the local church. And it seems this way. It seems like 
we've bought into a program more than this practical process of discipleship. And so the big thing, big challenge for Robbie and I when, when we came up in Gus and, and our whole team, when we came up, how can we take this to the local church? Because we don't see many models in the local church. And so we wanted to have a, a holistic approach. There's great value in a worship gathering. There's great value in a Sunday school or a life group. What happens in the worship gathering? The believers worship God. All witness comes out or is an overflow of worship. When you rightly see God for who He is, you're ready to hear His voice as the words preached, as you worship Him. And witness ought to overflow out of worship. So there's tremendous value there. The saints are equipped. Believers are edified. There's mutual edification there just in a gathering of people who worship and make much of God. And, and so there's tremendous value there. Uh, and especially when expository, we believe, especially when the preacher is an expository preacher, there's tremendous value because you're learning truth from the Word of God. You're learning principles that are life-changing. You know that as well as I do. So there's value there. In a life group, in a Sunday school class, in a small group, whatever you call it, uh, sometimes those need to be repurposed. But think about this. Friendships are forged. Um, people are living life together. You know the value of a small group. You know the value of a life group. Um, sometimes in our churches, they need to be tweaked and repurposed. But there's tremendous value. Um, Leaders in the life group are leading by example. They're investing in future leaders. They're mobilizing their people to do ministry and missions. They're fostering meaningful community. I mean, it, it can happen in a life group. It's, it's tremendous. But that's not enough. You know why? Because there are no accountable relationships. Think about your church. Are there accountable relationships in the worship gathering? No. You know why? Because we show up when we feel like it. Are there accountable relationships in a life group? There might be to a certain extent. But here's what we found. If you begin out of that life group, that could be your fishing pond, because you're making friends in that situation and new believers are coming into it, if it's a growing group. If you form a D group, three to five men with men, women with women, gender specific, and you're sitting around a table asking each other tough questions, challenging each other to go on with God, praying for one another, reading the Bible and, and memorizing scripture, journaling, reading the scriptures and journaling, memorizing scripture and praying together. And, and asking one another the tough questions because of accountability. That's where accountability can happen. You see it? In the life group, not much. In the large group, it's, it's non-existent. 
but in a D group where men are ministering to men and encouraging one another to go on with God. That's where true accountability can happen. And so, you know, as a pastor, as a leader, if you develop this pathway, and and you can do it in your own context, we believe three groups are important. As Robbie's talked about this pathway, you don't have to change the worship gathering. You don't have to change. You might have to tweak the life group to accomplish all of your purposes where you want a believer to come out strong on the other end of it to change the world. Um, you don't have to blow up Sunday school. You know, people, uh, they, they do. You, you might be in a traditional church. If you take this approach, you give value where there's value. There's tremendous value in the worship gathering and in the life group. But with the addition of a D group. It'll revolutionize and change your church. We've had the privilege over the last several years to speak into hundreds of pastors' lives. You know, I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds of pastors' lives. And the ones who've embraced this model uh, send us emails and tell us that God is doing such a deep work. And I believe the reason is because of those accountable relationships that they can't find anywhere else in the church. So let's lean into the D group a little bit. Um, you know, finding time. How does this work? How does it happen? Uh, Candy, I know as a disciple maker, you're also a mother. Two small boys, what, five and eight. Is that right? And uh, six and eight. That's right. It's recent. So, um, and I've met those boys. So I know you're busy. <laughs> I know you've got a lot going on. How do you make it work in your context? How do you disciple women? Um, such a busy schedule. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, it's you have to be intentional, um, and so and I feel like obviously that first starts with me as being a disciple of Christ and what that looks like in my everyday life as far as my own quiet time and um, being intentional about the boys having um, some sort of you know they don't one of them can read but the other can't quite read themselves so as far as them sitting down at the table and doing their own quiet time hasn't quite happened yet but us being intentional about doing some sort of a family devotion with them and then um, so I'm very um, strict with my time management in order to make all of those things happen and then when I typically disciple women is going to be like on a Wednesday night at church where um, the boys are in there involved in their activities on Wednesday night and then I, I have an hour hour and a half that I can sit down with a group of women and um, um, so that's my regular, has been my regular disciple meeting time for years. And both of my boys are in school now full time. So I have um, gained a little time back. And so I also have a group that meets during the day. Um, but I'm very also, it's very important that my discipling of women doesn't take away from my family time and then what I need to be doing in my home and in my family. And so, um, like I said, I'm just very strict with my time management. I wake up at five o'clock in the morning. That is my time with the Lord. I work out at six o'clock. I get the boys up at seven o'clock. Like I just, we just have a routine and we stick to that because it works and they start school at eight forty. So we typically will sit down at the table with them. Um, either I will or Robbie will, or we will together and do a quiet time with them before they go to school. And then 
taking advantage of every other opportunity we obviously have with our kids, just teachable moments throughout the day. And so um, my family is getting what they need, and then I'm also getting what I need by living life with a group of women. Um, and we, you know, we journey together for a year. And so Wednesday nights, and then sometimes during the um, during the day, I also have a group. And then, you know, we go to lunch together. Sometimes we go walking. We go running together. I mean, I am with and living life with the ladies that I have, that God's allowed me to do that with most of the time for a year. It's a year to 18 months. So we do all sorts of things together. It's not restricted to, like, that Wednesday night meeting. Um, There's a lot of things that we do. We celebrate birthdays together. We go on trips together. I mean, all sorts of things. And it's... um, just being intentional and prioritizing that time that we have. That's good. Yeah, I'll say, let me say one thing about that. So it's, it's important to say this, and, I, and a lot of you know this, but before we can make disciples, we have to be a disciple. Yes. You, you, you reproduce fruit of like kind. That's right. Okay, just remember that. So you're going to reproduce in others what, is, what, what God is doing in your life. And, you, and a lot, so here's the thing. We, we talk a lot today in the church about the lack of evangelism. Okay, you've heard, anybody heard this before? Nobody's evangelizing anymore. Nobody's sharing the gospel. And that's true, in a sense. I mean, it's, nobody has the zeal for evangelism. People are not sharing the gospel. I don't think we have an evangelism problem. I think we have a discipleship problem. And here's why. Because people are drawing from an empty well. Like, you can make people get enough courage to go share an Amway presentation gospel pitch, right? If you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? You can get enough courage to do that. And the challenge, I think, and I'm not against Amway or gospel presentation, because I think, I think both are good in context. But I think what happened, what's happened through the years, and you would agree, through the years we have done, or been intentional, I, I wouldn't say done well, we have been intentional with sharing, telling people how to share their faith, but we haven't taught them how to share their life. And that's a big difference. Because sharing one's life is messy, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, you can share a gospel presentation and walk away, but living life with people is messy. Why? Because we're all messy. We're humans. You're messy, I'm messy, we're all messy. So I, I think it's good that Kenny said that she wakes up and it's in, she's intentional about her own walk with the Lord. You know, John Wesley said, I don't study the Bible to preach. He said, I preach because I've studied the Bible. And maybe could it be that the reason we're not seeing evangelism more in the church, that the reason we're not seeing people share Christ more is because they don't have anything to share. You and I both know, when you get somebody to fall in love with Jesus, they can't help but talk about it. Remember when you got saved. <laughs> Remember how much you talk about Jesus when you got saved? And, I, and I'm not throwing you under the bus because I'm throwing myself under the bus. People used to tell me to shut up. You know, you, we don't want to hear any more about this Jesus guy. Please don't tell us any more about this. And, and it's like over time we become institutionalized, right? One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is that he never got over being saved. You know, he never got over being saved. And what discipleship does is it brings you back to a level of accountability, which I appreciate what Tim's saying where people are holding you accountable. And as a pastor, I don't know about you, I need people to look me in the eyeball and say, hey, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Are you in the Word until the Word gets into you? Are you memorizing the Word, Pastor? Are you are you living out the Word? Are you sharing Christ? I need people just as much as I hold, hold them accountable to hold me accountable. That's very good. And, and so when you look at the pathway you've got, uh, preaching, the Word of God, the worship service, you have the small group, which is typically going to be teaching community, 
In the D group, what specifically happens in, in what we're calling a discipleship group or a D group? Gus, can you explain that so uh, we can just be as clear as possible? We talk about it because it's kind of in the flow of our lives, but a lot of times uh, we get questions about that. So what is what happens in the D group? You're going to have to come to the next session to, to hear the DNA of a healthy D group. Uh, I'll say this. The one thing that we do teach is that effective discipleship has to have at its very core at least these two key elements. It's got to have an intentional relationship, and it has to have systematic biblical training. So at its very core, what happens in our time weekly sharing life on life is you can't be all content and no relationship, and you can't be all relationship with no content or no, no plan. You know, So for us, you know, anytime we're doing a training, anytime we're mobilizing our people, we want to show them this has got to be life on life. This can't just be a Bible study you show up to. So you want to have that intentional relationship. You want to have that genuine love. You want to live out the one another's of Scripture together as a D group. However, we also want to equip you with the Word of God. And that's the, the main means by which you're going to hear God uh, communicate to you in your life, challenge you, give you things to, to obey. I mean, you can't obey what you don't know. And so for us, if I want to teach them to obey Christ, I want to teach them the words of Christ. And so for us, those are at least two key elements. As far as the group time itself, I mean, they vary. There's no cookie cutter for it. But we would say that we for sure want our D group when they get together to share about their lives. So we do highs and lows when we first open up. Uh, there's going to be a time of scripture memory. We want to constantly be in the word and, and memorizing the word so that the word, you know, is really shaping us. Um, I love how pastor says it. Because we want to raise up a group of people that get into the Word until the Word gets into us. That's, a, that's one of the things we highlight. And then for us, the core component of our Bible intake time is through a journaling system that we teach all of our people in our church. It's called the HEAR Journal. And it's an acronym. It's Highlight, Explain, Apply, and Respond. So as we're teaching our young disciples how to study the Bible, we want to give them a game plan for approaching the Word in order to hear God speak to them. And so as they're reading the chapter or two chapters that were assigned for them, they're going to see a verse or two that just really resonates with them. They're going to go ahead and write out those verses at the top of their journal. And then we're going to teach them how to explain Scripture in its context. So in two to three sentences, they're going to write an explanation of that verse in scope of the larger chapter they read. And then we move to the application. We teach them to take the truth they just read and wrestle with its personal application. You know, three simple questions we use, you know, is there, you know, a principle in the text explicitly stated for you to apply? Is there an action or attitude to avoid? You know, or is there a promise to claim? You know, three simple application questions, but they're wrestling with that. And then we transition to the R, which is respond. Now that you've highlighted this verse, you've explained it in its context, you're applying it to your life, take a commitment and do something with it. And the response can look twofold. We teach them if you feel led to respond by writing out a prayer to God, then write out a prayer to God. Or if you want to take your application and make a one-sentence action step, then that's your response. Lord, based on this passage I read, I want to start doing X, Y, and Z. You know? And so the Here Journal is what they're doing throughout the week as they spend time with God. And when we get together in a D group, we're all going to share one of our Here Journals from the week. And then now we're getting to tap into each other's time with the Lord. And Billy may say, you know, this week I was reading James 1. I was really challenged by verse 5. And he'll go on to explain what it means, which I'm paying attention because I want to make sure they're learning how to explain Scripture in its context. 
There are great coaching opportunities there. Especially I was leading a D group through Philippians 4. They get to verse 13. And one of my members took verse 13 to, to go a little bit further than what that passage actually means. So lovingly there I get to talk about context. Is that really what the Apostle Paul meant there? I mean, I'm not going to quote Philippians 4.13 and say I can go dunk a basketball outside in those courts. I'm 5'8", Cuban-American kid with no ups, right? So that's not going to happen. You know, so it's not a blanket statement. What, what did Paul mean with all things? Let's look back at the text. You know, and I'm showing them. So even in the D group time, I'm modeling and showing them how to study the scripture to feed themselves. But ultimately, we want to get to the response, and that's what helps fuel our accountability. You know, our accountability time in the D group is, you know, obedience-based. You know, you, you can have set questions if you want, but we really feel like if you allow the Word of God that you're studying as a group to really shape your accountability, it's received well. And we want to keep grace at the forefront of our accountability. It's how are we doing in obeying what God is teaching us each week? Are we actually living it out? Are we taking it to the next level? How is it infused in our life? How is it affecting us? So one of the questions we use in conversation is, you know, what are you hearing from God? And we don't stop there. And what are you going to do about it? Or another way of saying is, you know, what is God teaching you and how is it affecting your life? And so all of our coaching questions, all of our discipling questions, you want to identify the Bible intake and move it into the realm of obedience. You know, make sure that they realize this isn't just for you to intake and no more stuff, right? Knowledge without application is just useless information. You don't want to take all these truths that God is showing you and revealing to you and apply them in your life. And so that's really what we try to do. And then we end with a time of prayer and praying for one another as a D group. But that would, that would be pretty much some of the core elements of what our weekly time uh, is together. Let me, let me say a word, too, is you might be wondering uh, and thinking to yourself, I don't have the gift of teaching. I'm not going to be able to lead a D group. Um, Pastor, what's wrong with that? Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why we suggest three to five. I found through the years, and, and like I said, for six months I was discipled by David one-on-one. But not many people are David Platt, right? Um, but then we opened it up to a larger group. What I found is one of the reasons men were not engaging in discipling relationships is because the thought of sitting across the table from another man, eyeball to eyeball, pulling back the dark outer coating of their life to reveal the inner secrets was paralyzing to some men. They're like, there's no way I'm going to do that. But if you add two or three other people in the group and you and you couch it as a journey, now granted there's someone who's leading, but you're in a journey together. And over time what will happen is they'll say, you know, if Bubba can do this and if Bob can do this, then man, I can do this. And we found that the groups were more likely to replicate when you went on a journey rather than one person leading and the other person sitting passively by. Another great insight from a group is you have a built-in accountability system. So like if we're meeting here and you don't have your scripture memorized or you're not in the Word, then it's just me telling you you shouldn't do it or you should do it actually. But if we're in a group together, then the leverage of these guys doing the activities or, or, or sharing their faith or reading their Bible is going to speak volumes to you without me ever saying a word. Why? Because when you say, hey, I don't have the scripture memorized this week, we say, don't worry about it. Tim, why don't you go? Blessed be the God and Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We'll, we'll see you next week. Now, you can do that for one or two weeks. 
But over time, it gets to be convicting over time, and you use that leverage of the group. So I would say that's what's the beauty of the group size. When you have a group, you're journaling at, journeying as a unit, and you don't feel the pressure to have to teach or the burden to have to teach. Another thing goes for life groups. We've found a great influx of life group launching in our church, just groups launching. When we move from the master-teacher model, model master-teacher teacher model, and, and, and I'll tell you how I kind of found this, is recently I was researching um, for a book I was working on, on the Jewishness of Jesus. I've been fascinated. Anybody fascinated with like the Jewishness of Jesus, Hebraic roots of Jesus? And I found out that Westerners, which we are, most of us, Roman influence, Hellenistic influence, we're different than Eastern influence. And I'll give you one example. Easterners learn differently than Westerners. Okay, So Westerners, we learn and think we learn, and I think this is a fallacy, but we think that learning happens through transfer of information. Right? So naturally our churches are built around more lessons, more studies, more Bible studies. And we think that if we have more Bible studies, we're going to be more spiritual. But you and I both know a lot of people who know a lot of Scripture, and they're not very spiritual, right? The flip side is, as a study of the Eastern culture, I realized that Jesus was very intentional in teaching seven practices, and he taught them over, seven truths, and he just taught over and over and over. And Jesus was showing those guys that not just learning through transfer of information, but it was actually learning through reiteration and replication, or reiteration and intentionality of, of replicating what you're learning. Let me give you an example. I was reading through the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. And here's what one of the sages of Israel said. And this is a radically different approach. Think about this. He said, he who studied his lesson 100 times is not as effective as he who studied it 101. Now think about that. It's very different than today. Because we would say, wow, that's not really, I don't want to learn anything old. I want to learn something new. And that's kind of the culture we live in. But we would say that we want to reiterate what we've learned. I think the problem in the American church is not the gap between what we know and what we don't know. Dave Browning said this, the gap in the Christian church that's the problem is between what we know and what we do. And here's what he said. I feel the weight of this. He said, we have become educated beyond our obedience. See, it's not that I need to learn something new in the Bible, although I love learning new things. And it's not even in the things in the Bible that I don't know that I have a problem with. I'm sure you and I would agree. It's the things in the Bible that I do know that I have a hard time with, right? Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't lust. Those are the challenging things at times. And so it's trying to reinforce what we already know. And so that's why we moved. We made a shift when we got here from a master-teacher model where you sit in another sermon by another pastor on another or another teacher on a different message to more of an intentional reiteration of what we heard earlier. And I'm going to tell you, We've seen a lot of change in a life where people practically living out. And that's what I want you to remember. Discipleship, as many of you know, is not just filling the mind with information to, to go on an intellectual ascent of knowledge. It's, it's obedience-based discipleship. Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Uh, so we've seen a lot of people you now take what they heard and, and apply it. And Candy, we have a life group. Candy and I lead a life group. And I think that's a big shift. And it's a big weight off our shoulders now. I don't have to prepare all week long to lead this journey. We come in and we live life together. And a couple key questions can lead that. So so in, in addressing that, I'll ask Candy this person. You can speak into it. How do you find that as both of you are making disciples, 
you are able to hold each other accountable? How does accountability work as a family? And then how do you disciple, disciple your children? So we think of discipling our children and we think of, you know, husband-wife relationship and how uh, I'm guessing there's conversations that might happen. Uh, whatever that is, what does that look like for you guys in terms of the accountability of, of making disciples? Um, let me say this before we move on, too, because I was thinking about this as y'all were talking about. Um, this is what I was thinking about. So it's, I think it's so important um, in a discipleship group setting to, when you're meeting with a group of people for an extended period of time, before you launch them out, there has to be a time in that group where they are leading under your leadership. Because if they do not do that, they will never feel that they're equipped and that they can do it. And so the main, one of those main goals is when you know that, repl- that replicating is going to happen at the, at the end of that year, um, they have to feel like they walk away knowing they can do everything that you just did with them for a year. And so if they walk away and they don't feel that way, then I haven't done my job in equipping them as much as I can and investing everything I have in them. And so one thing that we do, which I'm going to talk a lot about this in, in, in my sessions tomorrow, but I know a lot of you won't be in there, but um, is throughout our time together, I divide up where for a few months I'm leading everything. I'm, I'm facilitating our discussion. You know, I'm choosing the books that we're going to read. I've chosen the Bible plan that we're going to read. You know, I, I do all of those things um, for months. And then I will start... Um, getting them to kind of help me lead. They don't even realize they're doing it, but the first step is them sharing their testimony. And so what we do is um, there comes a time and a place where you need a quick testimony, like just a few minutes, but I want 20 minutes. I want to know, like, you know, who are you? Where are you from? How was your childhood? You know, take me, how did you meet Christ? And what what has God done in your life since then? So I give them a significant amount of time um, to share those things, like 20, 30 minutes. It's awesome. I mean, it is probably one of the highlights of our year together is just hearing what God has done in their lives. We ask questions. We encourage them about things that they've gone through. And it's just a wonderful time. And they don't even realize they are learning to lead. They're, they're speaking. They're sharing their life. They're being transparent. They're doing all of those things without even realizing that that's what they're doing. And then, you know, we'll go a few months later. I'm doing everything again, facilitating um and then, you know, we'll break it up again. We incorporate books as well. Like, so we, I call it essentials and optionals. The essential is the Bible reading plan. We, we read the Bible every day. Um, but we also will incorporate different books that we'll read together. And so what we'll do is I'll, I'll lead our discussion on our journal entries and on our scripture memory and that sort of thing. But I'll let them lead the book discussion. So whatever chapter of the book that we've read. And so we may flip-flop that throughout the year. And then towards the end of the year, which is where we are now, um, all the ladies have picked a week and they are going to come in and do the whole entire thing. So it won't be me saying, hey, Hey ladies, how was your week? You know, let's let's chit chat. They'll do all of those things just so that they know when they walk away in December and they're launching in January, I can do this because I just got through leading this group. I've taken part in doing that three and four times throughout the year. And Jesus modeled that. We know that he did that um, all throughout scripture. So I just thought that it was important to mention that because I feel like that is an effective part of of our men and women feeling like, hey, I can do this. I can lead a group. I can facilitate this group because I've done it three or four times, but that wasn't the question, but that's good. (laughs) Very helpful. Um, I would say for discipling kids, which we try to be into, I think the key with kids, you know, is intentionality. And, uh, one of the things about what I've learned about my own kids is that it's hard to expect them to do something that I'm not emulating myself. Right. 
You know, they found a study of why, they, they did a study of why pastors' kids walk away from the church. 70% of pastors' kids, I think the study is, walk away from the church. 70% of pastors' kids. Why is that? Well, they probed a little deeper. They found out that dad was not the same guy at home as he was on Sunday on the stage. So they saw this guy who was caring and loving and compassionate and edifying on the platform at the church, but when he got home he was domineering and overbearing and authoritative and negative and demeaning. And so I've been really challenged, me personally, is that I want to try to be the same guy off the platform as on. And I also want to be the same guy that is expecting my kids to do something that I'm emulating myself. So I'll give you a perfect for instance. Um, Kenny and I uh, read in the morning. You read any time you want. I used to read at night. I read in the morning now. It just kind of helps the day. But what I found is I was reading in my office. And I got up early. I said, man, I don't want to be bothered. don't want any distractions. I have been there. I want to go in the office. I want to read alone. But what I found is I was missing a discipling opportunity for my kids. So Kenny would always read in the living room. I, I decided to start reading downstairs. And so we have the, this little sunroom area. So I'd go in there and read in the morning. And my kids, who were littler back then, you know, they were like, they were like three and five. They would run down the stairs and they would see Daddy reading the Bible. And what they would do is they want to talk to Daddy and run and hug. And I'd hug them and they'd want to talk. And then I'd say, hey, let, let me finish reading the Bible, Rig, and I, I want to finish. And then we'll play. And uh, over time, what I realized was I was emulating for them something that I could expect for them later. Now, I realized that showing them the Bible was good, but I didn't want to do this. Hey, Rig, by the way, I'm reading Romans, son. Just Romans this morning. You don't want to do that. But I just did it out of the natural flow of life. Well, guess what my son wants to do now when he wakes up? Guess what he wants to do? He wants to read the Bible. Why? Because he saw his daddy read the Bible. And it was important to his dad, and now it's important to him. And so those are just little things. I think just finding ways to be intentional with discipling kids. We, we do it every night. I, I read the Bible with them every night as well. Um, and just uh, a time to read together and pray. And here's something cool to do with your kids. Ask them for prayer requests. You know, so often we pray, hey, have a great day at school. I help him learn, protect him from anything bad. I started saying, hey, what do you want to pray for? today. And in, in the beginning it was, Dad, I want a Nintendo 3DS. Okay. Beyond that, right? You know, beyond the Nintendo 3DS, you know. And then now we're starting to get a layer or two down where they're starting to pray for their teachers. They're starting to pray for their, their students in the class. And then now the gospel's now beyond themselves. And now the mission is now outside of themselves, which I thought was a neat thing that's happening. So That's good. I'm going to have Jordan come grab a mic um, from Candy so we can get some questions from you guys. We want to answer those. Um, and while he's doing that, just want, real quickly touch on this. I don't want to miss it, Pastor. How do we gauge spiritual growth? We're making disciples. We're pouring into people. How do we know if it's working? Yeah. I uh, wrote a little book. came out last year. Uh, no, it came out this year, actually, uh, this summer, called The Marks of a Disciple. And, and here's why I wrote the book. I felt like for so long, we have said gauging success in the church is not the ABCs of church growth, attendance, buildings, and cash. We've said that for years, but here's the problem. Nobody's given us another metric. Like, what is the other metric? Like, how do you gauge success? So after hearing that for years, I created this. Our team actually helped as well. The marks of a disciple. What are the marks of a healthy disciple? A disciple-making group and a disciple individually. So here's what they are. A disciple that is growing and, and, and a disciple that is effective is a missional-minded individual, M. The A is accountable. They're accountable to another person. The R is reproducible. The mentee becomes a mentor. The C is communal. 
They're living life together. They're living in intimate, transparent relations with other people. You can't get that in a large gathering, as Tim said. And then the final one is scriptural. You, you won't believe how many ministries out there in the area of discipleship use everything but the Bible. Remember, the Bible's the textbook, amen? You never graduate from the Bible. You never graduate beyond the Bible. So we want to get in the Word until the Word gets into it. That's what I would say um, marks of, of discipleship. Good. Just raise your hand if you have a question. Jordan's going to come over. Got some right here. Hi. First of all, thank you for ha- having this and for hosting us here. It's it's been a, a, an awesome pleasure. Um, my question is: You mentioned earlier um, that, and Pastor Robbie, um, you mentioned earlier that uh, you know back in the day we had Sunday school and we had Wednesday night and we had all these other um, things. And then, uh, you know, you're talking about life groups. I guess I'm curious to know kind of how you do the life group and the D group. Is it two separate things? How do you kind of how do you do that? Because are we not just kind of replacing our services that we used to have for for these new groups? And I, I totally get the sharing life part of it. And I think that's 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 a big key. But time commitments, I think, is uh, kind of my concern with with people wanting to be a part of something like this. Yeah. So, yeah. So the church I inherited years ago. Sunday morning, traditional Southern Baptist Church. Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Tuesday Bible study. That was normal. Anybody pastor in that church now? Know that church? Okay, so I was in that church. And what I found is another sermon by a different preacher was not multiplying the impact of the message from Sunday. It was actually dividing the impact, right? So by the time you got through all of those services, you have discounted the impact of the morning service by a sixteenth or by one over thirty-two. So you just uh, you, you just mo- divided that down to where you can't remember the points from Sunday. And then we moved to this model where we're emphasizing and reinforcing what we're doing on Sunday. It maximized the impact. So it seems like we're taking away in order to add more. But here's how we do it: um, we do we do Sunday morning service here. You can do on-campus groups, which we have a lot of on-campus groups. But the problem with on-campus groups is you run out of real estate. We're maxed here. There's no more room on this campus. So you either have two options. You build an enormous facility for one day a week, or you use the real estate that you already own, and that's the homes of people in the community. Now think of the different mindset there. It's not only let's just meet, it's let's meet and reach our neighbors, which I think the greatest mission field in America is the most unused and and neglected, and that's the neighborhood, right? So we're reaching our neighbors. So those are the two time slots. I was preaching uh, to a large staff a while back of a church. If I mentioned the name, you'd know it. And the pastor asked me this very question. He said, how am I going to expect these staff members, top-tier staff members here, to add another time to their busy schedules? Pastor, there's no way they can do that. And here's what I ask them. I'll ask you. Does anybody ever go to lunch during the week out to eat? Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay. Does anybody ever go to breakfast early in the morning? Anybody ever been to breakfast early in the morning? Okay. I'm not asking you to add something to the schedule. I'm asking you to maximize the schedule you already have. And it's once a week. And, you know, there are 50,000 coffee shops in America, and they will let you come even though you don't drink their coffee. They'll even let you sit there and study the Bible, believe it or not. And so... I think it's just maximizing the schedule. So we're doing the two time slots, Sunday, most some, sometimes Sunday, Sunday morning. And then our life groups meet throughout the week. And then out of the life groups, they're meeting for the D groups. And remember, the D group's different than the life group in that it's men with men, women with women. Why is that important? Because a man, here, here's the thing about men. 
Men shut down when women are in the room. Let's be honest, right? Think about your think about your Sunday school classes. Most men don't talk on Sundays. No offense to women. Maybe they feel inferior, inferior to women. But they just don't feel comfortable talking in a mixed setting. But you put a bunch of men in a closed group of men with men, women with women, you can't shut them up, right? I mean, let's be honest. In a good way. Because they begin to be open and honest. And, and Jordan, who's uh, on my staff, he's in one of my discipleship groups. We have to temper the time because it can go long. The guys just talk about their life and how they've been impacted by the gospel and how they're learning and growing. And so I would say it's just repurposing some of the times you have. The greatest time for D groups, and I'll end with this, is Wednesday night. And here's why. Think about your church on Wednesday night. You have all these classrooms that are available, unused, and you have child care and student activities on campus normally. So what we did on Wednesday night is we repurposed the buildings... And at my former church, when we came from, you can ask Tim, who was our discipleship pastor there, we had, what, five, six hundred men and women meeting on the campus all throughout the campus. That was the largest night for Deegers. They're meeting all throughout the campus. So you're just repurposing groups and rooms you already have. So, unless you guys want to add something. Uh, we attended one of your training groups at Brainerd, and uh, we're from Chipley, Florida. And we've... Uh, about nine months in, maybe ten, and uh, has done really well. We're excited. I lead a, a group. It's probably been my greatest spiritual experience, second to salvation wow. itself. Wow, wow. And, uh, but what we're facing there, a lot of interest in the church because of what's taking place within the groups. And uh, we have a lot of interest or some interest within the groups about uh, speeding up the process. In other words, it's going to take us a year, and then we start again for a year. We, uh, Some of us in my group particularly feel like there are people within the church now that have ability to lead groups. How would you go about making that determination or initiating groups because I had no experience other than a little bit of training we got in that two-day uh, seminar that you guys had. Were well, you at the blueprint you're talking about, the discipleship blueprint? Yeah. And so the question is, you know, is there is it better not to try to initiate leaders out there and speed up the process, just wait and let the year or 18-month process work itself out? Uh, we're really interested, especially within my group, of getting what we're getting to everybody in our church who would love to be discipled that have to wait to get in a group. Brother, thank you so much for sharing. Um, and and I'm so glad that this is really a joy to hear that. And then, Pastor, let me say a couple of things. The first thing I'd say, and I want Gus to speak to this as well. The first thing I'd say would is this. It's okay to have people wait to be in a group. You know, that was one of the things we experienced. Robbie and I have experienced that, and now Gus and Robbie are experiencing that. There are people who are wanting to get in groups, and we don't have the leaders yet to lead groups. We're training leaders all the time, uh, but it's okay to say wait. Now, you can do some things with the people who are waiting 
um, and and you can give them books to read. You, I'd, I'd get them to read Growing Up, one of the greatest books that Robbie wrote it, but it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, you can get them to read a book. You can get them um, to do some spiritual disciplines on their own. I've done I've done it all while people have been waiting. But but the second thing is once you identify those people in your church who are uh, who are walking with Jesus and, and begin to look like Jesus, uh, and you believe that they would do a good job leading a discipleship group, you can have a leader training uh, for them to get them thoroughly acquainted with whatever your system is. If you've adopted our system, good. If you've adopted another system that works best in your context, um you know, whatever system your pastor or your church leaders have adopted, you can begin to train some like-minded people who have a heart for discipleship and and begin to let them um, lead groups. So I think plan A for me personally would be you walk through a group and see it modeled, then you lead a group. You challenge, you challenge them to replicate. However, we've discovered that that just because we think that's the best, uh, there are some places and circumstances where if you could get some like-minded people together and, and do some sort of training with them um, to get them ready to lead a group. Gus, your thoughts? Yeah, I say one of the things that we've done here in just changing a culture at this church that had already been established. We've got a lot of people that have been serving here for years. Is you know, I held first just a general informational meeting on this is what disciple making is. This is where we're going to be headed as a church. But I wasn't necessarily focused on that first event, making D groups happen immediately. But I pointed to a second event, and so the second one was if you feel God is leading you to disciple others, and you already know that's what you want to devote your life to. We're going to offer you some training to help you start that journey. And, you know, out of that group, that's where the first wave of our discipleship groups here at Long Hollow started this year. Um, So I would say first our priority was as a staff, we wanted to make sure that we were equipping our staff to be disciple makers. That was step one for us in our organization, our church. Once we saw a few of those, uh, you know, pastors and leaders engaging in D groups, then we offered that training to our church lay leaders. And then now we're seeing you know, a second and a third wave of discipleship groups launching here at this church. And for us, we've been here less than a year, except for pastors who actually been here a year. I started in December uh, at this church. So we've had to do everything that we've done in the past at different churches and start from scratch here, which has been fun. It always tweaks your strategy. It always makes you think of your process. But take advantage of offering training opportunities. The one um, concern that I would say is don't feel the pressure to have to match people up with mentors and disciple makers. We have this joke we throw around here that we don't want to be a D-harmony you know, church. You know? No offense to E-harmony. I know his sister's met her husband through that. I've got friends that have met on E-harmony. I'm not knocking it. However, as the church, you don't want to get stuck in that routine. You want to make sure that they are reaching out to people that they have a connection to, that they're on mission pursuing people to invest and share the gospel and disciple. So you don't want to start creating that culture of matchmaking and 
and doing all of that. And, and it's a lot better when those relationships are formed naturally through personal invitation, personal investment. Those groups tend to last longer and actually multiply later versus the weight being on you as a staff. Hey, I want to be discipled. Match me up with somebody. You know, so that's always hard to fight against. I think yeah. that's the number one concern most pastors and leaders get. Yeah, I think you got to realize, too, I mean, how long did it take God to grow you? You know, how long does it take to grow me? And we're still growing. So I would say the biggest thing to remember is that discipleship is not a microwavable recipe. It's a crockpot recipe. And uh, it takes time. But, boy, it's worth the wait, right, when you get that recipe and eat it. Uh, I, I remember reading in a book called The Green Letters by a guy named Miles Stanford, or Stanford. And here's what he said. He heard the story of a professor being asked by one of his students a question. He said, I want to be able to take this class, but I want to fast-track the class. Can I get the same information at a faster rate? And the professor said, it depends on what you want to be. It takes six months to grow a squash. It takes a hundred years to grow an oak tree. What do you want to be? I thought that's pretty insightful. So, so I would say resist the urge to try to fast-track. You know, when I talk to pastors, and undoubtedly a pastor will say, how long before we see results? I say, Pastor, that's probably the wrong question to ask. It just takes time. But here's the cool thing about discipleship. When you take the time to start a discipleship movement in your church, and God begins to turn on the hearts of your people and they catch fire. I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, uh, you don't have to advertise a fire. It advertises itself. That's right. And I'm just telling you, we're starting to see it here at Long Hollow just in a year, but we started at the former church we're at. When people get on fire and fall in love with Jesus, they can't help but talk about him. They can't help but share about him. So uh, I would just say be patient. You can only start it once. You can tweak along the way, but you can only start it, start it once. So I would say this. One of the things that got me thinking about our role, you know, especially if you're here and you're a leader at a church, the reason we like to start with our staff first and making sure that our staff is on the same page, that we're all in you know, the process of forming as disciples, and we understand what discipleship is. And we go, actually, our first stage was creating a staff discipleship group and teaching it and modeling and shaping our staff here. And here's why. There's a big difference between being a travel agent and a tour guide. You know, a travel agent can book your trip and send you on a way, but he's not going on that journey with you. A tour guide says, hey, come follow me. I'm going to take you down this journey I've been on several times, but I want to show you the way. And the more he shows it to you, the more you have confidence in him. And then eventually, the real joy is when that person you've been leading on the journey can be a tour guide for somebody else. And so there are a lot of senior pastors that want to implement a discipleship program or strategy, but they themselves are not discipling people. They want to be a travel agent, booking and mapping out a course for the church, yet they're not going on the journey taking people on that trip. And so for us, we want to be tour guides, not travel agents. We want to make sure we're walking people on the journey to following and obeying Jesus Christ. In your training session here, do you use growing up in your training session for new leaders? In the training session itself, we do um, sessions that we do at our discipleship blueprint. The Growing Up book is a resource we recommend all new groups to use for their first 13 weeks of meeting. And so, yeah. 
No, no. We use some of the principles. Growing up is more of a resource for the disciple growing in their relationship with Christ. So for the leadership training, we're teaching them how to make disciples and how to lead the group. The, the resource growing up is meant to be used in the group. So we recommend that as one of the first resources. Rediscovering that, discipleship yeah. is, how, is, is, is how we do it in the church. So growing up is what we do practically with all the groups. So if you're meeting in a group, you're going to read through it, which is basically all of the spiritual discipline books concise. Rediscovering discipleship is what we're doing here at Long Hollow. Like how do you implement it in the local church? That's basically how it all right, our time is up. I want to uh, ask Brother Tim to close us in prayer. If you're interested in more about Replicate, you can go to our website, replicate.org. All of us are teaching a session. Uh, I think Candy's teaching two or three. Uh, pastor's speaking, I believe it's tomorrow afternoon, uh, 2.30. So you can get uh, some more of that as you look at the guide. You can see where those are taking place. Uh, Gus is going to step over in the other room and kick off the D-Group DNA. Um, after this as well. So, Brother Tim, you close us in prayer. Let's pray together. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. This audio was adapted from the original presentation. Not all live interactions are included. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.